0: Hello and welcome to Making Waves with me, Rowan Henthorn,
1: and me, Aaron Ibanez. So in this series we'll be exploring all things ocean
0: and talking to the movers and shakers, the ocean explorers and the characters that are driven to make a difference in this watery world.
1: So drop in and join us for this six-part series of stories from the sea. pandemic hasn't halted this one for a change despite having to do everything uh, virtually for the last two three four episodes it seems
0: yeah i mean it's great because you have access to lots more interesting people but there's also something about i don't know getting in your car and meeting somebody and like the kind of conversations you have while you're making tea and I am really looking forward to hopefully next series doing a few more conversations in person because I think there is a certain level of, of magic that comes with that. But, you know, saying that we have been able to interview some fantastic people that we definitely wouldn't have had the opportunity to do because, well, they don't live on the Isle of Man.
1: <laughs> yeah, you mentioned the next series. We're feeling ambitious that hopefully there's no more disruption in sight.
0: Yeah, I think we will record the episodes prior to Releasing them next time because we were kind of like, oh, yeah, we'll record and we will get this flow going. And then we got hit by two global pandemics and it just kind of screwed our schedule. Because I think the start of some of our intros are like a weekly episode (laughs) and it's just no chance. (laughs) Like there are some weeks that there's an episode, but there's a lot of weeks where there is not an episode. So a bit more consistency for the people that are listening, maybe.
1: Definitely. And we've certainly got the impetus behind us now with this series i guess coming to it close today on today's episode our final of the series is paul rose who has got quite the cv and if i can remember it from the top of my head i think it's diver first and foremost explorer base commander in the antarctic on a number of expeditions national geographics pristine seas which most importantly expedition leader And he's a broadcaster on top of all that. So he can communicate his work, basically, which we have learned.
0: Yeah, he was great. So amazing to meet him and a real ocean optimist. And yeah, he's been to some of the most remote places, some of the most, well, I guess, pristine seas and um, got to experience the real wonders of our watery world. So it was so fantastic to speak to him.
1: And for those, we obviously conducted it over Zoom and we, we did it on the video call, and it, it really shined through Paul, didn't it? He was su- such a, he was grinning throughout the entire chat. He was, you could just tell that he was oozing with passion about the sea.
0: Yeah, it's a special thing when you speak to somebody who really, really loves what they do um, and seems to be guided by his intuition and, and that passion. Um, so that was a really special thing to experience.
1: And also what was special to experience was uh, Rowan in a fish tank.
0: Yeah, I had a total (laughs) fail of technology. I did check the battery of my microphone before I recorded, but then finished the call with Paul after an hour or so and looked down and realised that I hadn't recorded any of it or maybe with the first three minutes. So I sound like I am in a fish tank, (laughs) but well, that's fine. I wasn't, don't worry about me, I was on dry land. Yeah,
1: that's just the caveat for for this episode, but it certainly doesn't detract from your insight as ever.
0: <laughs> Thank you.
1: And of course, it, it came out during a time when everybody's talking about the sea, seemingly, with sea-spiracy. Um, and we touch on that with Paul and get his thoughts amongst a whole raft of other things.
0: We talk about the National Geographic Pristine Seas Project, which really goes out to really amazing areas and surveys them for potential marine protected area designation Um, and we're really lucky over here on the Isle of Man, um, 50% of our inshore waters are protected Um, and hopefully we can work towards achieving that 30% of protected waters by 2030 but we'll see what happens there.
1: Here's the series two and over to Paul.
0: Over to Paul, thank you so much for taking the time to chat to us.
1: It's probably the, uh, the, the best backdrop we could have for this uh, podcast episode as well. A whole rack of diving
2: gear. Yeah, it's yes. very appropriate. <laughs> it, it's funny, really, Aaron, because in, in the Lake District, I've got most of my kit. That's my sort of technical hub. So I have most of the equipment there ready for anywhere in the world. So here... I've got some gear, uh, most specifically equipment to enjoy the Swiss mountains and the region and uh, dive in the lakes. So yeah, got to have the gear. Always a quick. Um, I just want to remark on a picture of yours.
1: It's your header on Twitter, and it's you in what seems to be somewhere in the Arctic, and you're in all your dive gear with your with your, your scuba tank and everything.
2: And um, there's like a husky nibbling on your head. What's the story behind that? Yeah, you're a good man and that's my favorite picture when i do uh, something that's related to our project pristine seas national geographic um, i'm sometimes asked by people you know you work with you know some of the world's greatest photographers and filmmakers so you know do you have a favorite picture or a memory of a photograph or a bit of a film and i always point to that one because yes i led our pristine seas expedition up in the canadian arctic um and the dog, we had a dog to look after, bear, you know, to give us an alert when bears were in the region. This beautiful dog, and I absolutely loved him because he was just this most beautiful dog. And he loved me because I knew where the food lived, and I fed him. He used to sleep on the flap of my tent, um, which was really great, and pee on it a lot too. But it was lovely. I, th- I took that as a, as a statement of love. I said, love this big, yeah. beautiful dog. An endearing pedal. And towards <laughs> the end of the season, the sea opened up enough that we could dive right out the front of our beach camp, because we were all camping on the, on the beach. And he must have picked up that this was about the last dive of the season. And as we went out sort of flow hopping between the ice flows um, to get all the gear out there and dragging all the equipment on the sledge, he was really agitated and excited. In fact, he bit one of our people on the leg. Then he bit me on the back of my leg through the suit. He was all fired up. Um, so when I went under, apparently he got really anxious. And, you know, there I was, disappeared. Uh, so in his eyes, my man's gone. And I was underwater for, you know, half an hour, 40 minutes. And when I popped up, the very first thing that happened was this enormous teeth grabbed my head. And... Um, you know, I mean, he's a big dog, and I've still got the, the holes in my head here that I can feel right here. So it was a huge surprise.
0: You definitely made it a dive to remember then.
2: <laughs> I'd love to talk about Spiracy. What an amazing film that's been. I mean, at last they got it out. I was aware it was being filmed. But it took a long time to get out, and at last, you know, there it was, and it's made a, it's made an enormous impact.
0: Yeah, and it's it's really created a lot of waves through different communities because I know a lot of fishery scientists, you know, I personally know fishery scientists that have been kind of shocked and appalled by the way it was done, but then I know I've, I've got personal friends that, you know, have got no kind of in-depth knowledge of this subject that, you know, had no idea that these issues are even, you know, something to talk you know to be interested in so it's it's been uh, it's been very interesting what are your what are your thoughts on it
2: yeah i liked it because it reaches an audience that that we can miss you know we can do our science work we can do our highly targeted media campaigns and all the rest and others but you can miss people you know how do you how do you communicate these issues to to everybody everybody has a different way of engaging with an issue and i found it entertaining I was disappointed that the NGOs didn't do a better job. I know that I know what it's like. They probably interviewed some of those people for two hours and then picked a one minute burst where they, they made them look ineffective. And that was a, that was sad thing to see, but you listen to Callum Roberts and you just everything he says and you go, wow, I love Callum and the work he does. You think, well, that's it. That's, that's an authoritative, absolutely accurate statement about the condition of our oceans so even if you take out some of the artistic license and drama and if you take out some of the fact that some of the data is a bit old because it took a long time to get the film done and if you remove you know some of the highly targeted and selective quotes from the ngos who i feel sorry for um, the reality is is it's We absolutely have to stop treating the ocean as if it's got a limitless supply to us and it it can be a bottomless pit for all of our waste. We can't keep taking stuff out and putting rubbish in and expect to live. We're never going to do it. So I love the, the power of it. There's a few things that made me jump in there, but you know what? We need a lot more of them.
0: And how would you feel about, I mean, I guess one of the main narratives of that is that there is no such thing as sustainable seafood. So, I mean, how would you feel about, that? you know, would you trust a Marine Stewardship Council label on a, on a, do you eat fish? You know, what's your kind of take on that?
2: Well, yeah, I do eat fish, and, uh, but I'm careful what I get. It was an enlightening moment about the Marine Stewardship Council. Blimey. You know, I didn't realize the way the money works and the way it flows around and where the incentives lie. That, um, that was a big surprise to me. But all that said, I think we can have sustainable seafood. I think if we create large enough and enough marine protected areas, we can do it. And all the numbers, and it's been proven, if we can create, if we can protect 30% of the ocean, we protect 30% of the ocean, then we can have sustainable seafood we can do it you know so that's the goal 30 by by 2030 which is you know is part of this high ambition coalition most countries have signed up uk doing a good job on leadership with that um, so i think we can do it and i've seen sustainable fishing in action but of course no one has seen sustainable fishing globally in action but um yeah i do eat i'm a i like fish um a lot but like everybody these days, I'm careful in how I have it. But sustainable fishing, it can definitely
0: happen. So obviously the UK have done fantastic work, especially in their overseas territories and protecting areas. And they have developed a kind of blue belt around the UK of protected areas. But there is, you know, quite a lot of criticism around their inshore protected areas and the level of protection that they have and the fact that I think 95% of them allow bottom trawling you know it's easier like some sort of kind of Greenpeace dropping boulders off into the dogger bank to stop to stop trawlers um so I guess I'm so fully supportive of that 30 by 30% but I guess it needs to be a mix of those highly protected areas and managed sustainable fisheries. What are your kind of views on the UK inshore protected areas?
2: I mean, what a surprise. Most people, I think, if you walked, walked around in Britain and said, what do you think of the UK marine really protected areas? And you highlighted the numbers of them. People say, wow, oh, Blooming, fantastic. It's great. We've got it. You know, it feels wonderful. That it's... And once I'd said all that, then you'd say, OK, guess what? Here are the pictures of bottom trawling going on in it. You know, you've got dolphins up here, you're celebrating the dolphins and all the amazing waters. And down there, what you can't see, we're dragging you know enormous industrial trawls around. So it's been a complete disaster. I mean, I think, luckily, I mean, there's been some really great work that's been going on just recently. You've seen the announcements. And, and there's that one region that has been, is it down in Sussex waters? I think it is. It's been protected now, thank yeah. you, properly protected. Blue Marine Foundation are doing a really good job on, you know, raising a sort of call to action. Why don't we have, you know, national parks in British waters? They're using that style. And the British, you know, government is finally being embarrassed enough, I think, with all of its terrific leadership with the Blue Belt Initiative and overseas territories and genuine global leadership on conservation issues. They maybe completely forgot or just hoped that some of that would be a smokescreen for what's going on in their home waters. But we've woken up. And I think that level of waking up and sense of awareness being so high now that there's no excuse for us to continue treating what we think of as protected waters as, as just a sort of, you know, ground to pull everything out of it. It's crazy. So in respect
1: of what Greenpeace are doing, for example, with the boulders, that's, you know, quite a, a blunt
2: form of protest and protection, I suppose. Is that something you'd endorse? Well, that's the thing. I mean, Greenpeace, I've always had a mixed feeling with Greenpeace. I've got lots of mates um, who work with Greenpeace and I've bumped into them many times at all kinds of things. And, and, I, and it, I do love that thing. I mean, you know, I remember the days of them climbing on top of oil rigs and putting flags in all kinds of prominent places. We've seen, we've seen their work and I get the idea of putting these boulders down so it snags the nets. I mean, it's a classic sort of Greenpeace. We need that, I think, sometimes to just wake people up a bit about this like, come on you know it's it's got so desperate uh, that we're going to have to do these lunatic fringe activities to get attention um i think it's got limited but we're never going to get tons of smart decision making and tons of behavioral change if we just rely on that we need the science data we need media that speaks to everybody and speaks to decision makers in their language but there's a place for that direct action, I've always been a fan of direct action.
0: So let's talk a little bit about um, National Geographic' pristine seas project. What an incredible project to be involved in! Um, do you want to talk a little bit about how you how you became involved in such a project?
2: It really is a great one. It was started by um, Dr. Enric Sala, who's one of these. Um, it, well, actually, he's a professor, Enric Sala, genius uh, marine scientist who was working at Scripps in California, and he had this moment where he realized every science paper he wrote actually felt like writing the obituary of the ocean in his words you know there's all this stuff going on and there, i suppose we all have that thought sometimes that if we just keep producing data and knowledge then smart decisions are going to be made but it's not always that way there has to be something else not just the not just the facts not just more data so he came up with the idea, got to do something, got to do some action, what can he do? And he realized, why don't we just look at all of the last pristine places in the ocean and find them, explore them and help get them protected. So he came up with the name Pristine Seas, went to National Geographic, they fell in love with them and he started the project. So he had a few expeditions with that in mind, this wonderful laser focus, you know, Um, After some time, it was a couple of years, was it two and a bit years of expeditions, we met, um, I was running a National Geographic event in London, and he asked if, as we were scaling up Pristine seas, would I be the expedition leader? And I said, well, yeah, to me it just felt great. I mean, I'd, I'd come from, you know, 10 years working for the British Antarctic Survey as the base commander in Antarctica, plus all of the other work for the Americans in Antarctica. And I thought this would be a great follow on from that. So yeah, so I just took my operation and field work skills and applied them to pristine season. It's been one of the best decisions I've ever made. It's brilliant. We've now, you know, we've we've had 32 expeditions, created 23 marine protected areas over six uh, six million square kilometers. So we really are, and part of our success is, is Enric with the big idea, and then our laser focus. You know, every decision we make at sea, if I think, well, should we go to this site or that site or do more diving today or film more over there, is based on, will that decision help get the place protected? So it's a terrific project to be involved with. I'm working with a brilliant team. Wow, amazing team of filmmakers and scientists and communication people, it's a, we're a really great unit. Paul, can we talk about Tristan, Tristan da Cunha? Because we, you've touched
1: on obviously the the scale and and the number of expeditions that pristine seas has been involved in, and I think one that's quite timely is the marine protected zone uh, created at Tristan da Cunha. I think was it just towards the back end of last year? Um, for those that perhaps don't appreciate how remote it is as an island, can you just describe the journey to tristan because you led an
2: expedition there didn't you a few years ago i did yeah a couple of years ago i led the expedition to tristan da kuna which is a british territory a uk overseas territory so going there it brought to mind and it brought to light just how remote it is i mean it's the world's most remote permanent inhabitants so it's a long way it's a week it's a week to sail there whether you go from the bottom of south america or the bottom of africa it's a week of sailing and that's on a modern vessel so it's a long way i mean mostly we're at sea for about three weeks to five weeks that's our normal method and our normal passage depending where we depart from might be three or four days and then we're on site and then we work so it was quite something suddenly you go okay this is a week it's a long way and the arrival couldn't be better i mean they're big seas down there you're in the southern ocean and Suddenly, one morning you wake up and you saw the tip of this volcano. That's Tristan da Cunha and the bird life. The birds come and visit you and you you realize, wow, here we are at Tristan da Cunha. And it was a terrific expedition because not only did we cover the main islands of Tristan da Cunha, we went south in the archipelago to Goff, which is the most southerly island, and that's an incredibly remote place to another remote place. So it felt like a real extension. Um, we were lucky we had an amazing expedition. We made a lot of good friends with the Tristan community. And then thankfully, um, you know, once we've done the expedition, we've done the film, we've done the science, published everything. There's a bit of delay before things are officially signed in. And as you quite rightly say, it was only last year it was signed in and what a moment. Unfortunately, we couldn't all be together on Tristan and we couldn't have the Tristans back to England or anywhere because of COVID, but I do remember uh, Joelle and I opened up a bottle of champagne that night and it felt absolutely brilliant.
0: <laughs> and just to put it into perspective for the listeners, you know, the marine protected area is three times the size of the UK, like it's absolutely huge. Um, I guess something that's so special about it is that it's it's such a large no-take area and that is actually quite a rare feature of a a marine protected area which you know many people might not understand so I guess there's two questions to that and how does somebody protect ensure that an area that's three times the size of the UK is actually protected from, from fishing and other disturbances. Is it, is it down to the people of Tristan da Cunha? Do they take a real pride and partnership of that area?
2: Well, years ago, the only way to protect uh, waters was to have aircraft or ships. And that's a big, expensive process and not always very effective. Um, but nevertheless, that's how places were protected. Some years ago, I want to say, must be seven years ago now, All of a sudden, we started to get satellite surveillance working. Um, I remember, I clearly remember going to Oxford to the catapult team. And I love the catapult team, really great, enthusiastic group. Um, And they looked at all of the satellites and where there was spare capacity on existing satellites. And one place they found a lot of capacity was when they were over the ocean, relatively empty spaces. So they started to Target shipping vessels, you know, what's going on at sea and then went right fishing boats Let's look at boats and work out where they're all moving because you see commercial boats have to send up their little AIS They have to send this little uh, Message all the time. That's constantly pinging their location So they came up with a pretty basic idea of where all the vessel movements were And obviously that leads to think ah, we can monitor what's going on even better as the uh, computers sort of learned you know artificial intelligence it soon learned when a vessel turned off its ais system went into a protected area and then turned it back on again coming out the other side because the millions and millions and millions of fishing vessel movements we, we could never track as humans so gradually this developed and other people developed it uh, google fishing watch oceana SkyTruth, all of these others and now we've got this sort of global view of every single fishing movement. And and a good thing to look at is you've probably done it is a global fishing watch. Just go online. You can see everything. One of the most rewarding things when you see that is that the movement of the fishing vessels pretty much maps out protected areas because they're missing them or going around them. But uh, it does mean that vessels still do turn off their units, go in and, and work hard at fishing illegally in certain places so that was always a weakness because people say okay you're monitoring it but so what how can it possibly be enforced and then five years ago something came in called the port state measures agreement by the UN, and we've now got i think 70 something countries and i signed up to that and the port state measures agreement means that if we had this complicated international flow where you had say uh, an asian vessel crewed by a mixture of nationalities flying under say a panamanian flag fishing in protected uk waters and selling its fish in valparaiso you know horrible international mix you know who's responsible for what who can be prosecuted and it meant they used to fall through the gaps but now they do get prosecuted we can we can prosecute that very complicated method so it's now become the norm that we can see where they are. We can prosecute them when they fish illegally. It's a bit like a speeding camera. You're not gonna stop everybody up the M6 who wants to do 130 miles an hour, but the speeding camera is gonna stop most people. And that's where we are with the enforcement. The Pristine Seas project obviously seen it as like a perfect
1: location to protect because of, it, because of its remoteness, I imagine. Um, were there any existing threats or historic threats to Tristan, or was it purely
2: untouched? Yes, it was pristine, but um, we were super keen to stop the illegal fishing that was going on. Lots of uh, shark fishing was occurring in Tristan waters, and we could see on satellite data these vessels coming in, and then they knew themselves, they were witnessing it themselves from from their own boats and their own fishing activity. And it's been a great successful project because there is no illegal fishing at the moment running in tristan waters and the only thing that is being fished is from the tristan community which is part of their livelihood so it's a it's a good combination you know and we're talking about a community
1: of about 250 300 people
2: yeah okay amazing with purely for an, purely with an appetite for lobster <laughs> yeah and the income that it brings in there's a right there's the the, the fishing uh, uh there's a vessel that comes in from cape town once every few weeks and and, and collects the fish and organizes supply for the islands as well. So yeah, it's a a good, sustainable business, truly beautiful. And what's funny in my first dive at Tristan, I remember saying to the camera, I can't believe I'm diving in a commercial fishery, you know, because they commercially fished, they fished fished the lobster. And yet it was just amazing because they would just take, they just take enough. They never take too much. There's a whole complete manage, like managing, carefully managing your own beautiful uh, vegetable garden in your home. You wouldn't go out there and just take the whole lot and say, oh, there's nothing left. Um, so it's a beautiful thing, um, the way it's run. And on the remote distant uh, Tristan da Kuna waters, um, we have by doing it that they have you know effectively stopped any uh, encroachment into their waters by illegal fishing,
0: which is a great thing. Um, I was watching a Pristine Seas video before and there was a really beautiful quote that said, you know, a good fisherman isn't, isn't somebody that takes what they want, it's, it's taking what you need and, and being a carer of, of our ocean. So it's really beautiful to see that working. I mean, with our limited time, I'd love to hear what are your you know, recommendations for the average person, you know, to protect their seas or just to even yeah. be a little bit more involved in ocean issues.
2: Definitely. Well, the main thing for people, if, you know, those of us who are divers or sailors or fishermen or, you know, people that love the sea, it's pretty easy, I think, for us to be engaged, you know, walk down beaches and pick up plastic rubbish, you know, look at the, you know, look at all the campaigns for um, surfers against sewage, you know, all these beautiful campaigns that are going on. We can feel that we're making a difference. We're smart. We're engaged in the issue, but for people who aren't in the sea, and don't maybe get the sea, don't love being in the sea, but have a sense of doing the right thing. The main thing is to remember that each one of us is very powerful because we vote. We vote for people and we vote for people in funny ways, not just on a ballot, but we vote for them when we buy stuff. When we buy fish or clothing or cars or houses or mortgages or insurance, rather than just buy stuff, these days we tend to look at values. Um, and I think we need direct action as a set of values. Not much I every year I donate to these organisations, but physical, hands-on, meaningful stuff for the arts, humanities, conservation, you name it. A real meaningful human set of scaled-up values. That's what we need. When we buy stuff, then we vote for a set of principles that lead us towards sustainability. Paul, well, I'd just like... just. Just briefly
1: touch on, I guess, over the course of your career, from, you know, experiencing the ocean firsthand to where we're at now. Do you think we're entering an age of like heightened environmental awareness where people are wanting to make a difference?
2: Yeah, I mean, this pandemic arrived because of our out of balance relationship with nature. We've got, thank heavens, science has given us vaccines now, but the only true vaccine against future pandemics is to readdress that balance with nature. And people are seeing that, that wonderful thing that we all knew but couldn't describe it, but now we can. We can describe that our health is reliant on everybody else's health, which in turn is reliant on the health of nature. People get it. People get the value of nature. We've got the High Ambition Coalition for 30% of the planet protected by 2030. Even more exciting, it's seen as being a waypoint to E.O. Wilson's hypothesis, half Earth, 50%. Of the planet by 2050. And to help carry the message, not only have we got our health, I mean, there's no better motivation than our own personal health, and we've got that fact. People know that now. We've also got the financial incentives. You know, all the big financial reporters are saying that no matter what it costs to protect 30% of the planet by 2030, the financial rewards are going to be about five to one. So there's our behavioural change, there's our desire to be more sustainable, um, and there's the reality that if you protect large areas of the ocean, you do end up with more fish. So it's all come in a, a bit of a dream. And I think within my lifetime, we'll easily see the, see the end of illegal fishing. More champagne.
0: Great, it's a real case of the ocean and planetary optimism, which is a, which is a really nice kind of <laughs> place to leave it, yeah. I think.
2: It couldn't be, it's a a sweet spot for the planet and I'm happy to be here for it. Thank you very much
1: for your time, Paul, and thanks for joining us on the final episode of the podcast. And I guess thanks to all our guests, who appeared on the podcast all the people we got to meet and learn about their passion and drive for the, the sea um, and of course a big thanks to everyone who subscribed and um, thanks to our very close relatives and friends
0: who
1: <laughs> may be the sole reviewers
0: yeah of, uh... I was like, please review it please that you like it <laughs> but yeah if you have listened to the podcast and enjoyed it let us know um you know always love to chat to people so give us a message on instagram or anything and if there's any particular guests you'd like us to try and interview for the next series obviously get in touch um because it's been an amazing experience and i don't want it to finish
1: (laughs) absolutely and can i ask you whilst you're here um obviously aside from your day job um what's going to be going on with sustain rc's
0: yeah I'm going to do a relaunch so we've kind of been I've, well we, I act like I've got a team <laughs> No, I've been a bit distracted because I've been doing a course on uh, climate change up at the college for people and that ends in two weeks and then I'm going to put a lot more effort into Sustain Our Seas and I've got some exciting campaigns for the summer planned um, and some events so yeah watch the space I hope to kind of reignite a bit of the passion behind Sustain Our Seas again
1: Ace, and you're of course on Instagram and Facebook and all the rest of it on you. So. Yeah,
0: you can find me with Ocean Row or Rowan Henthorn on Twitter. So always drop me a line. It's always nice to connect with everyone. You're a local
1: marine biologist on the Isle of Man. What more can you want? <laughs> Thanks again, everyone.
0: Thank you.